You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. Thanks for listening in. You know, it seems like just about every year, once mid-October rolls around, people start getting excited for the rut and asking the same questions. Will it be an early rut? Will it be a late rut? When should I take my time off? When are the red moon days? Have you started seeing any rut activity? People start looking up the rut forecast in magazines or online to see what days they need to be in the stand. And really, the timing of the rut is very simple when we take a scientific look at it. There can absolutely be some variance from the forecasted best days or averages based on the genes that have propagated within your specific herd. And in this podcast, Boswell and I discuss some strategies that you can use to build a scientific estimate of the actual breeding dates of your local deer, and just as importantly, how to use that information to make your rut hunting strategies more successful. We also discuss a few of the very popular myths regarding rut timing. A lot of people will tend to base the timing of the rut on their own observations rather than looking at the big picture. And I know that you probably have a lot of experience, you know, from real world studies that you've read or performed that you're able to have a little bit better understanding of what the rut timing actually looks like. So if you want to just, I guess, start off by giving a basic overview of what biology tells us about rut timing. Yeah. One of the, there's, I mean, it's a major misconception in a lot of places that you know, everybody says the rut is basically the first, you know, week of November, the second week in November. And, you know, in the Midwest, that's kind of where the, the peak of the bell curve comes in is I think it's the last study I read was maybe like the 14th or 16th of November is when the peak of the bell curve is. So for a lot of places, that's true, but you see a lot of things in, on social media and people hunting where, you know, they may be in somewhere like you, northern Minnesota or Michigan, and, you know, they're hunting that same time frame, you know, expecting to catch the peak rut, as well as you see people in, you know, central Arkansas that are in Tennessee, even for some of that matter, that are hunting that same time frame, expecting to hit the peak of the rut, when in all reality, that rut has a drastic vary from basically north to south. And there's, the reason behind that is, the rut is dictated by nothing other than uh, photo period. So that is the amount of daylight in a day. So there is a triggering point in there for does when that photo period reaches a certain time that triggers them to basically come into cycle. So if somebody in northern Minnesota, that photo period is going to hit drastically sooner than somebody in central Arkansas or Oklahoma. So there's a lot of misconceptions about, you know, weather dictates rut, uh, moon phase dictates rut. You know, none of that's been proven to dictate rut whatsoever. The one thing that has been has been photo period. And, of course, we're talking about, when we talk about rut, we're talking about breeding. We're not necessarily talking about movement that you'll see on stand, which I think is where a lot of the misconceptions start to come in is, guys associating what they see on stand with what is actually happening that they can't see. Yeah, exactly. There, Everybody correlates, you know, the rut with deer movement because that's obviously when most people want to be out there. In all reality, that's probably not necessarily – it's mostly pre-rut is when a lot of that's going to occur. Um, some of it will occur into the rut because typically, you know, once a buck is with a doe that's in heat, he may stay with her for up to three days um, on that particular doe. You know, sometimes they may stay with them as little as 48 hours um, or 24 hours even. So when we when we look at that latitude gradient within there, the reason why there's such a difference in when you get to the southern part of the United States, the ruts may be longer or the period where the breeding season per se is longer. And a lot of it has to do with the biology of uh, – when that doe needs to be bred in order to have the highest fawn survival rates. So for example, again, if we look back up in the north, um, up on the border, it's real critical for that doe to be bred at the right time because 
when she has that fawn is critical. If she has it too soon, there you know may still get a late winter storm or something like that that can kill that fawn off. If she comes in too late and is bred too late, then her fawn will be born late. So then that fawn may not have enough time to build up uh, the things it would need. So fat going into winter, um, the deer may not be healthy enough to go into its first winter and survive. That's why a lot of places, the winter can really dictate your fawn survival rate. And so down south where the weather's, you know, a lot less critical, there's a little bit, a bigger margin of error for when that fawn can be born and still survive. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, she could drop a fawn as early as March. And for the most places in the south, that's perfectly suitable time for a fawn to be able to develop. Um, And she may be able to drop a fawn as late as, you know, say late July, early August, um, and still be able for that fawn to survive going into that winter. Again, the winters aren't as harsh, so that fawn doesn't necessarily need as much fat on it, you know, kidney fat, things like this, to um, make it through the winter. And you had mentioned the bell curve, and I think sometimes we take for granted that um, everybody knows. I mean, it's a pretty common term that people talk about when they talk about rut timing, but I don't know if everybody necessarily knows what a bell curve is. A bell curve is a graphical way of showing a normal statistical distribution. When you look at a large amount of data, individually, you might have numbers or values that are all over the map. But when you look at all those values as a whole, you'll begin to see an average. And most of the values will show up quite close to the average. There will still be numbers that are far from the average, but they're much less common. An example could be the height of a male person. You have some guys that are under five foot tall, some that are over seven foot tall and everywhere in between. But when you graph out everybody's height, you see that the average is somewhere around five foot 10 or whatever it is. Most guys will be fairly close to that height. And if you were to pick out a guy at random, the odds are pretty good he'd be within an inch or so of five foot 10. The odds would be worse to pick somebody out at random that was either under five foot three or over six foot six but it wouldn't be that unheard of. The odds of picking out somebody at random who's under four foot ten or over seven foot two would be really bad, but it's still statistically possible. And when we apply this idea to rut timing, we're basically saying that you have an average date when you look at a ton of data all at once. But when you look at individual deer, you'll see a variance from that average. The further away you get from the average, the less likely it becomes, but it could still happen. Yeah, one of the one of the big things you see with that is you see somebody maybe mid-October that sees a, a buck pushing a doe around. And they'll say, well, isn't it a little early for that? And it, really, it's not. I mean, that doe could very easily be in heat uh, for that particular doe. It's in a general population scale, yes, it may be a little bit early. But for that particular doe, she may be in heat. So that's kind of the thing you've got to look at is when that peak is for your area. And that can vary drastically um, from area to area and from region to region you know especially on that north south um, line it can really change and so we can look at this on a deer by deer basis we can look at this on a population basis we can look at this on a regional basis or a latitude basis like you're saying how much variation is there typically between you know say a regional basis where you might look at a state or even a portion of a state like, you know, central Iowa, that latitude, and you just look at that one particular location, and then you kind of break it apart even further within just that one location. I mean, how much variance could you get? And is that variance kind of broken up by pocket by pocket, you know, section of land by section of land, deer by deer? Could you have one deer that is going into heat in mid-October, and that same deer will go into heat mid-October every year until it dies? And every deer in that particular population around you know like a certain town might have an early rut or is it really just all over the map so the best way to look at this is we'll start at the individual deer level and then we'll kind of work up from there so again the rut is all dictated by the does it has nothing to do with the bucks Uh, when that doe comes in heat then that's when that buck is up and moving so a doe typically will come in estrus about you know, plus or minus five to seven days each year. So if she comes in October, you know, 31st, the next year that doe is more than likely, statistically she's going to come in heat plus or minus five days of that every year, basically, that she, while she's alive. So knowing that, that genetic is passed on to her fawns. So if she has a doe fawn, that genetic is passed on to her doe fawn. 
So that will be kind of in the same time frame. So she may come in October 31st. Her doe fawn may come in November 4th. And again, that doe fawn the next year will come in plus or minus, you know, five to seven days of that time period. By knowing that, we know that does disperse less than bucks. So a doe may only disperse, say, you know, there's numbers out there anywhere up to a couple miles, whereas, you know, a juvenile buck, a year and a half old buck have, you know, they've been documented to disperse 13, 14 miles from where they are. So this creates these pockets of areas where the breeding occurs about the same time every year because these does don't disperse very far from where they're born typically. So their home range stays pretty small and that genetic characteristic is passed on to that doe fawn. She doesn't disperse, but maybe a mile from where she was born, she has a doe fawn. It disperses, you know, within a half mile of that. So that's where you get these localized pockets of really odd rut characteristics. And I think there's one, if I remember, it's in Alabama, somewhere down in there. They have a, a county, I believe, or a, a small pocketed area where these deer don't come into the rut until like mid-February. Um, and that has to do with the, you know, the the deer that come in, they brought in when they tried to reestablish deer in that area. They had that really late breeding characteristic. So the does continued to pass that late breeding characteristic on to their fawns which created this pocket um, in the state where the breeding occurs extremely late to, you know, maybe surrounding areas around it where these deer weren't brought in, where they may have been native deer to the state. And I guess the only way to really learn when your particular pocket of deer, you know, on average will come into at the estrus cycle is just by hunting and gaining years of experience there and trying to figure it out that way. So the the best way to do this um, is what is called basically fetus aging. So what you can do is if you harvest a deer late season, uh, this typically you can only do this once about 30 to 45 days after that doe has been bred is when you get the best uh, measurement from this. I think on QDMA, I think they're the ones who who have it. You can buy what's called a fetus ruler. It's about five or seven bucks somewhere in that range and what you can do is if you say you harvest a doe late season you know into december into january when you gut this deer you can actually find the fetus uh, you can cut the fetus out and you can lay the fetus on this ruler in kind of a natural fetal position and you measure from if i remember right it's the forehead it's either the forehead or the nose to the butt not including the tail but basically the back of the butt and on this ruler, it will tell you a couple things. It will tell you days from conception, weeks from conception, and it will tell you uh, number of days to birth and number of weeks to birth. So what you can do from this very valuable information, in my opinion, you can go back and determine what the conception date of that particular doe was on your property that you're hunting. And again, keep in mind that that doe probably had fawns before then, so that characteristic of when she was bred is going to be in that population. So we used to do what were called deer herd health surveys. And this was part of what we did is we would go out, um, it was January, February timeframe, and we would shoot deer and we would take this information from the fetuses and be able to determine when peak rut was. And a lot of these areas, you know, people were determining, you know, peak rut would, they would say, you know, is the 15th or 17th of November. In all reality, it was about the 23rd, 24th of November. I've seen does bred as early as October 7th, and I've seen does bred as late as like December 21st. So there's, you know, different areas or can be drastically different uh, breeding timeframes in there. So especially if you're out doing these late season hunts where you can hunt into January and you plan on taking a doe. Now, I don't recommend doing all of your your antlerless harvest in the late season like that. Um, but if you do plan to take a doe or two, spend the five or seven bucks, whatever it is, for a ruler, and use that information to your advantage since you've already harvested that deer. Um, if you're not, you're wasting some valuable information. And then 
this is kind of a tangent, but I know I've heard people that will scold other hunters for shooting a doe late season because you're essentially killing more than one deer. Uh, the way I kind of look at it is that does have a very li- very high likelihood that they're going to be bred and that they're going to carry a fawn. So regardless if you shoot that doe in September, October, or if you shoot it in December, January, you're not only taking out that doe, but next year's fawns as well. Yeah. And there's, there's a little bit of research out there. You know, it's kind of, it's slightly better to do your antlerless harvest early in the season compared to late season. But if you're still trying to develop this, this management program that you want, or you want to know more about, you know, when your deer population is basically coming into the rut, when the best time for that doe to be bred is, it's pretty valuable information to take a few deer late season to try to do this. If you take one deer a year, two deer a year, late season over five years, you can get some pretty valuable information from that. Well, one thing you mentioned before too, was that, you know, the date that you guys saw peak rut versus what a lot of other hunters had assumed I think, you know, the date that you guys are getting is the conception date, which is probably a few days after what normally people would consider to be peak rut, where they would try to assimilate peak rut with peak movement in the time that they want to be in the woods. Right. Yeah, that's that's a, again, another variable. Like we said, the pre-rut is typically when you start seeing a lot of those bucks up and moving. Um, you know, conception, they're pretty much going to be locked down with that doe during that time frame. But it's like you said, it's the days right before that time frame. And again, once you know that time frame, then you know what the few days just before that's going to be. So, you know, the best times to be in the tree stand. So then I guess the next, the next thing I would want to know or be curious about is, you know, if you know this information of when a particular you know, population of deer is going to breed and, you know, I guess, uh, when's the best time to be in the woods, you know, why do all these other factors come into play? Why do people assume that, you know, the weather has such a big impact? Why do people assume that the moon phase has such a big impact? Why do people assume that, you know, all these different factors other than photo period could be, uh, triggers to the rut? Do you think it's more so that the rut is, happening at a certain date regardless of anything else that's going on and the only thing that the weather and the moon and you know potentially anything else is you know factoring in is just in terms of the daylight movement that they're going to see hunters are a very um they really rely on what they see compared to everybody else so if they see deer movement when the moon is you know in a certain phase they're going to tend to believe that compared to scientific research that says completely opposite uh, because they believe that what they seen was you know best for my area when on all reality it may not have anything to do with it so like you said one of the big things that people say is you know well it's going to be a warm rut you know they're calling for 65 degree temperatures you know that's going to push the rut back or the deer aren't going to move those deer are going to move one way or another deer live uh, to breed that's basically what they're there for so they're going to move whether it's 85 degrees or whether it's, you know, negative 10 degrees. Those deer are going to get up and move and they're going to, they're going to use a lot more energy, obviously, if it's hotter compared to if it's cooler. But they're still going to be moving because they're there to breed um, and they, the does have a short time window of when they're able to be bred. So those bucks are going to be on their feet trying to breed as many of those does as possible. So for guys that are trying to plan, say, an out-of-state tr- out hunt, and they're trying to figure out which two weeks to take off from work. We should ideally base it on historical rut dates versus moon phase, in your opinion. Yeah, call the local biologist, talk to him, see if they've done any um, herd health surveys, ask them about the, the fetus measurements that they got, You know what kind of dates they may have had for things like that. And that's, again, really going to tip you off to a lot closer time frame than you know just guessing on the second week in november because like you said you may end up getting a lease that's in one of these weird pockets where it may be a week before um, an area that's 30 miles away so you just got to kind of really like i said if you can harvest those late season that's going to help you um, if not like i said reach out to the biologist and see if they'll be willing to help you out and give you some of this information yeah i think one thing i've probably observed and you know, I've thought for a while that the rut hasn't depended on factors other than just the, the photo period. 
Uh, but one thing I noticed that when I'm out in the woods in a time that I should be seeing deer, sometimes I'll see the sign pop up, but I won't be seeing the movement. And I think in cases like that, you know, it's like you say, the deer are moving, they're still breeding, but they might not be doing it at the time that you're in the stand. They might be, you know, doing it nocturnal or something else. And you might think it's a bad rut when in reality, it's just bad deer viewing conditions. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, the, the nocturnal thing, if it's warm and it may drop, say it's 80 in the day, drops to 50 at night, those deer are going to be doing most of that moving at night. Um, obviously they're going to do most of that anyways. Um, but a lot more of that is going to be done at night compared to when it's 80 degrees, but those deer are still going to be moving roughly about the same amount. Another thing that I think a lot of people sometimes get confused upon is, uh, when they start seeing buck sign, you know, when they start seeing scrapes pop up, when they start seeing trees get shredded, it doesn't necessarily mean that the rut is on or that does are in estrus right now. So again, the rut is, the rut is dictated by the does and the does only. Um, a buck is able to breed from basically the time he sheds his velvet to the time he drops his antlers, that buck could breed a doe. So any doe that comes in heat from the time he loses his velvet till the time he drops it, he could breed that doe. So that's a, you know, four month span. So a lot of people, like you said, they go off of sign, whether that's rubs, scrapes, things like that. And again, it's all dictated off of the does. And that's where a lot of people get mixed up as they start hunting that, that sign that's there. Uh, and again, those does may not be ready to breed yet. And you're spending a lot of time, you know, too early in the stand, um, or too late for that matter. You may miss it. I know one thing that'll kind of tip us off, like whenever I would go up North, uh, to Northern Minnesota to hunt with my friends. One thing that was just an obvious giveaway, regardless of any sign that you'd see in the woods would be just the number of dead deer you'd see on the side of the highway. So that's a, that's a really interesting thing. When I was, when I lived in Virginia up near Northern Virginia, it was really weird in starting probably late October, uh, through, you know, the first part of December, mid December, the local radio station there actually did a, a pretty interesting thing. They would actually call the department of transportation and get a number of deer reports uh, of deer being hit by vehicles and they would tell that every morning on the news station and it was really interesting to be able to listen to that increase as it went through you know into the month of november into the peak rut and then as it decreased on its way out so i thought that was a really interesting way to um, kind of associate you know it's a pretty broad area over the listening area of this radio station but you could almost take that information that the Department of Transportation give you and put into that bell curve that we were talking about, about number of deer strikes with um, deer collisions, not deer strikes, I'm thinking of bird strikes, (laughs) but um, deer collisions with vehicles and have that bell curve. And you could look at that bell curve and kind of get a rough idea. Again, it's a broad area, but that's going to get you a really better idea than just, you know, going off of deer movement that you're seeing in the stand. Right. And I think one of the keys here is number of data points and just volume of information because realistically what you see once twice three times half a dozen times even a dozen times it's just a small piece of the puzzle and you know that bell curve is there's a lot of deer around um you're looking at multiple populations of deer potentially and several deer within those populations and the more data that you can gather if you're taking notes you know recording when you're seeing you know new dead deer on the the side of the road one year versus the other, um, you know, once you start seeing movement or any breeding activity, or if you're taking the, the fetal measurements over a period of several years, those data points will continue to accumulate and you'll be able to start seeing a pattern emerge. I mentioned earlier about the, about, you know, I think it was the 14th to the 16th being like the peak rut, um, for the Midwest. And a lot of that come from basically an accumulation of fetal measurements from across these states all put together. So again, a drastically high number of samples from states like Iowa, Kansas, uh, Illinois, the states like this all put these data in these data points in so that you have a high number, and that's kind of where they got this uh, 14th to 16th rut time frame for the Midwest. And that's of course the, the peak of the curve, but it's not just a spike. It, it is a curve. So if you were to actually break it down further and actually look at all the data points, you'd see a whole scattering of, of data points all over the place. It's just a trend that maximizes at those, you know, very certain dates. And if you were to, you know, I guess zoom in pocket to pocket, you'd be able to see some different trends 
you know, plus or minus from that actual average over the entire region. So keep this, keep this in mind. If you do do these, uh, fetal measurements on your property, you know, if you take one doe, don't, don't bet your next month's or next year's vacation off of the data you get from that one doe. Cause that may be the one doe in the area who, you know, breeds the end of October or mid October for that matter. Um, so then you may be completely missing it, but if you will take, like I said, you know, one or two deer a year, keep that data and look at it, you know, over a five, six year trend, you know, again, you're looking at, you know, two deer a year, five years, that's 10 deer. You're looking at 10 deer in your area to determine when the rut of that's going to be. Um, you're going to have a pretty good idea for your area when, when the peak conception date for those deer has been. I think a lot of people are, you know, accustomed to the fact that bucks travel during the rut and it seems like younger bucks will travel more than older bucks, correct? Yeah, it's kind of very. I also have, you know, read in certain instances that you'll have does that will travel too. And so yeah, if you have a doe that's traveling, like you said, that might be that outlying data point where you have your population of deer, but all of a sudden you have a wanderer come in from a different location and then you get that data and it could throw, you know, it could be an outlier compared to the rest of your, your group. Yeah. That's kind of part of their, you know, genetic diversity trait. So like you said, there's been times where bucks may take, you know, of a mile and a half, two mile, you know, beeline outside of their core home area and then turn around and come back a day or two later. So kind of what's happening in that is they're, you know, kind of spreading the genetic diversity out. And like you said, there's been some research that's recently showed up saying that does, you know, tend to kind of do the same thing in some areas as these does may go on a, you know, a mile or two beeline outside of their home or core area, you know, to possibly get bred outside of that area to bring in some new genetics back into her core area. And I know the guys over at Land and Legacy podcast just shared um, some of that Penn State uh, deer research where they looked at one of their deer's GPS deer movements during the rut and before. And it's kind of pretty interesting to watch. He moved a, a tremendous amount of distance. And I, again, I, this may be way off, but this is kind of off the top of my head. I want to say somewhere maybe around like 30 miles. But he did that in a pretty small core area that maybe, you know, a mile and a quarter, mile and a half area. But he just bounced around that core area a lot um, from one side to the other, just back and forth all the way across it. He never really took any long journeys outside of his home range or core area. But, you know, in that instance, that deer moved a lot in that small area. So this goes to show that you may just be in the wrong stand location. And if I remember right from, from that, that I seen there, you know, he basically stayed on one side of a ridge kind of in a valley basically. And if you were literally hunting on the other side of the ridge from him, you would have never seen this deer in the 30 miles he moved. So it just kind of goes to show you really need to try to find that deer's core area and home range and really hunt within that area. How, how old was this particular buck in the study? Do you remember? I don't, I think I remember something saying about, you know, this is, was probably going to be the last one because the collar was reaching its life expectancy and they thought that the, the deer had kind of outlived what they expected it to. So I, I don't remember reading an age in there. Well, I remember a few years ago when I was in a Metro hunt, there was a particular area and this is, this is probably not your typical area um, because it's, you know maybe a thousand acre piece of land. But the, what makes it so odd was that for a long time, they always had antlerless only hunts proceeding on any sex hunt. And so over time with all of these, you know, controlled hunts that went on, the buck to doe ratio got way out of whack in favor of the bucks. So you'd have maybe five or six bucks for every doe and you would have whatever buck was dominant when you'd have a doe that went into heat, you'd basically have that buck just constantly fending off a whole bunch of other bucks and so he was putting on a lot of miles just you know in short zigzags 30 yards here 40 yards there uh, just trying to you know stay active and maintain his dominance and a lot of a lot of hunters kind of go off the same premises of you know well the dominant buck's going to breed the most does and there's some information out there that says that's really not true whatsoever uh 
you know, there's some studies that show that, you know, like a, if I remember right, it was like a five and a half year old deer. He bred one doe in that season um, compared to, you know, you see these small bucks because they're on their feet earlier. They're pushing does longer and, you know, they're just on them more, you know, they might have a tendency to breed more does just because they're up pushing more. Um, you know, they're going to get those early does, those late does, and maybe even some of the does in the peak of that bell curve again. Yeah, I was listening I was listening to uh, one of the White Knuckle production podcasts a little while ago, and they had a guest on that said something really interesting to me was that even in deer populations where there's a really good age structure, you would still have, you know, yearling bucks doing like 30% of the breeding even when you had plenty of three, four, five, six-year-old bucks around. And a lot of hunters are going to freak out when they see that because, you know, they're wondering why that little buck is breeding that doe when in all reality, you don't know what that buck's genetics is. You know, he could, his father could have been a 200-inch deer, but just because he's a four-point or a small six-point, it doesn't really mean anything. Again, you know, age is the biggest, the biggest factor for it, um, as well as genetics, nutrition, things like that. But just because that four-year-old deer is breeding it, you know, three years later, he could be, you know, a 180, and he's already passed his genes along three years before that. Yeah, and I think I've actually seen some people who uh, think that if a younger deer breeds, he's he's spreading bad genetics, worse genetics than if he were to breed when he was three or four. That's, that's not how genetics works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, as well, the doe. Her genetics play just as much of a part as that as the buck does. And for does, some does, it's been documented that does can have, say she has a twin, her twins can actually have different fathers, basically. Mm -hmm. So so you're not going to, that's part of that genetic diversity again as well. You can have two fawns from the same doe with two completely different genetic makeups for them. And the, the reason behind the doe's only going into estrus once, right? But it is the reasoning behind that when that happens that basically she's in estrus for a certain window and one buck will breed her right away in that window. And then before that buck can breed her again, he'll get pushed off by a different buck and that second buck will breed her before she, you know, exits the estrus cycle. Yeah, exactly. So the estrus cycle, once she comes into that cycle, like you said, she can be breed be bred by you know two or three different bucks in that cycle um, for a deer that may not get bred in that cycle so for example a lot of your i'm not gonna say a lot some to most of your your doe fawns so fawns that were um i about said calved so <laughs> a lot of your a lot of your fawns that were this year's fawns they may not come in until the second ester cycle so that's what a lot of people call like the second rut and again that's going to vary depending on where you're at, that could be anywhere from, you know, extremely late November to early December. And again, if that doe doesn't get bred there, she can come into a third estrus cycle, which can be even into January um, until she gets bred, basically. And, you know, after typically the third one, a lot of them don't come into a fourth or anything after that. Typically, they got about three cycles. And I mean, that, so that second estrus, like for the, that year's fawns, that's not something that carries on to the next year. Like, when we talked about earlier, the does would come in, you know, within five to seven days, you know, every year that doesn't include the first year. Correct. Because again, think about it. Her, her mom passed her genetics onto her. So if her mom came in around that, you know, mid-October timeframe, that's the genetics that were passed to her. Her body just wasn't sexually developed to be able to breed by that October 30th timeframe, basically. So then she automatically got bumped back to that second estrus cycle. And do you have uh, numbers or statistics on how many does get bred throughout a, a typical uh, rut cycle? Uh, no, I don't off the top of my head. Um, are you talking like for the first estrus cycle to the second to the no, third? No, just, just in general. By the time all breeding is done, how many of the does have been bred? I, I don't off the top of my head. I, I mean, I would – memory serves me correctly. It's greater, way greater than 70%, probably close to 80%. And again, that's memory up from a long ways back in school, but I'm sure it probably depends on the, the buck to doe ratio as well. Exactly. So part of the, you know, when you go to look at like these herd health surveys, um, that we've done in the past, you know, part of it was, you know, looking at the fetus. And then another kind of indication of that is, 
uh, what's a kidney fat index. So you can kind of weigh the kidney in relation to the amount of fat that's around the kidney to kind of get a deer health survey. And that's going to kind of be beneficial to you for the development of that fawn that that doe may have had or the deer in your area, kind of what's their health index uh, to be able to recruit fawns into the next year. So that's something that, again, if you're taking deer late season, something to look at. I think Acuity May, I'm sure, has something on their website about kidney fat index. Um, I know, like I said, this some of this was done back in Arkansas. And if I remember right, you cut the ends off, the end of the fat off the kidneys without cutting the kidneys, and it's basically what's left attached to it, not necessarily what wraps around the ends of it. And then you weigh the kidney in relation to the amount of fat that's on the kidney. Obviously, the higher the fat content, the better it's going to be. Right. And so I'm trying to think now, based on the stuff that we've talked about so far, you know, how can I apply all this information to, to make me a more effective hunter during the rut? And it seems like a big part of it is just gathering intel, which is going to take a long time. But eventually that intel, if I take good enough notes, will help me determine when the best days to be in the woods are and when I absolutely have to take those, you know, three, four, five days off versus just taking off, you know, a solid two weeks and getting out there when I can. Um, it seems like, you know, we talked about particular bucks will travel a long ways during the rut, but it might not be over a large area. And so if you're hunting an area and you're just seeing the same bunch of little bucks running around, it might not necessarily be that there's no big bucks around. It might just not be that it might be that you're just not covering that, you know, the bigger bucks core area and where he's doing a lot of his movement or a lot of the, you know, bigger deer movement might be at night. Um, the deer that I saw during this rut so far, you know, I've been, I've been telling you, this is from a deer sighting standpoint, this has been the best year I've had on public land in a long time, uh, hunting that new marsh. I've averaged, I think 1.7 deer sightings per, per sit over like the last 10 sits, which is very high for me. Uh, but I've still been seeing a lot of almost all the bucks I've seen have been yearling bucks, you know, four corn, six pointers, little eight pointers, that type of thing. So where I might get, you know, drawn into saying, okay, well, the does are here. I got buck movement. I just got to keep sitting here. And eventually the big ones are going to come through. It might not necessarily be the case. I might need to keep moving around until I intersect with a bigger deer's core area. And I might start to see some of his sign that he's leaving while he's traveling throughout that core area. Finding core areas to me is simple as trail cameras, you know, kind of start out using trail cameras to kind of locate a buck in the area. And then kind of once you find that buck, maybe move more of your cameras into that area and slowly start to kind of tighten in on that buck until you can find his core area. And then knowing his core area in correlation with knowing when the conception date in your area is, it gives you a really good time frame to be able to slip into that core area um, with the right winds and hunt that area and have the most likely opportunity to see that deer on his feet and moving. Right. And even one step further than that, know his core area, know the dates and know the best funnels within that core area to be set up in the right spot. Cause if he's got a core area of, you know, a square mile or, you know, what have you, that's a lot of land that he could potentially cover and knowing the best p potential pinch points to be able to intersect them. is going to be pretty critical. Yeah. And it goes, again, it goes back to, you know, just how much that buck really moves within that rut time frame. You know, 30 miles, um, and I don't remember the day span of it. It was, I don't know, maybe 14 days. I'm not even sure off the top of my head what that study showed. You know, just moving 30 miles within there, you figure, you know, that's a couple miles a day at least. And again, it's within that core area. So he has a pretty good potential to be able to cruise around you. And again, even if the wind's not perfect for that, as long as you can kind of get in his core area, on the edge of his core area during that time frame with the wind in your advantage, you still have a higher chance of seeing that buck than if you were to try to hunt a better area outside of his core area. Right. And while trail cameras might be the best way to take inventory and, you know, determine a, a buck's core area, it's not, I want to point out that it's not the only way to do it. It's just a little bit easier to do it that way. You know, this, that marsh I was telling you about, you can't leave trail cameras out. You can put them out as long as you, you know, take them back out of the woods before nightfall, which completely right. just completely goes against the, the whole point of using a trail camera anyway. Um, so in those type of cases, you'd be looking for 
specifically big buck sign, not necessarily scrapes, but you know, the tracks that you're seeing in there, the size of the tracks, the, the spacing, you know, there's books that you can buy on, on tracking and, you know, like the Benoit's have books on tracking. There's I'm sure other ones out there as well. I can't think of any off the, the top of my head, any of the titles, but, uh, learning to identify large tracks can be big. Uh, finding big rubs can be helpful too. I mean, you, I've seen larger deer rub on a small tree, but not necessarily always the other way around. Uh, but that's not always the case. You might have a bigger buck where say his rack, you know, his main beams curl in quite a bit and he's not going to be able to rub as large of a diameter tree. Um, sometimes the height of a rub I've, I've noticed can, you know, tend to indicate more of a, the size of a deer cause he's going to be a little bit taller at the shoulder than say a yearling would. Um, but there's, yeah, there's other ways to find out if there's a big buck in the area than just getting pictures of them. Yeah. Trail cameras aren't the solve all problem for everything. Um, they can be really beneficial if used correctly, um, and used efficiently. But like you said, there, a lot of people rely way too much on trail cameras to determine, you know, what's in the areas. For example, this could go a completely opposite for you. If you have a trail camera set up on an area, you may not think that there is a, a good buck in that area, a mature buck in that area, when in all reality, you're just not, you don't have your cameras in the right place. So some people may skip hunting a particular farm or a particular piece of public land just because they may have been one ridge away from being in that core area and never got a good picture of that of that deer. So they abandon that. So that's where trail cameras can also really hurt you just as much as they can help you. Right. And it's like, you I mean, you're limited to how many cameras you put out. And so if you really want to get a good idea, a good inventory, you're going to have a lot of cameras out, which is going to cost you a lot of money if you got a lot of land to cover. You know, if I've got, you know, 15,000 acres of collected public, public land that I am regularly hunting, it's not going to be very effective for me to um, to place trail cameras in all the potential spots that I would want to. Um, I could probably learn more faster from just doing some of the in-season scouting and, and boots on the ground and trying to find fresh sign in, in cases like that. But like you said, there's some cases where trail cameras really are probably your your best option if you're able to use them effectively. And kind of jumping back real quick, one thing I wanted to mention, uh, fawns. So when you start to see fawns in the spring, if you don't want to do the, the fetus sampling, uh, you can kind of roughly get an idea of when that fawn was conceived. Uh, when you first see it, you know, it's about 200, 212 days for the most part when fawns really start to get up and moving. Again, there's quite a bit of variable in this one because, the, you know, that fawn could easily be a week old by the first time you see it. So now you're you're easily off by seven days. If that fawn's, you know, two weeks old by the time you see it, you're off by 14 days. But it will kind of give you a rough idea. And again, if I remember right, it's like 200 to 212 days. So there's already a 12-day variable added in there. Um, you add another 12-day variable and you're looking at a month variable in there, which really doesn't help you much. Right. Uh, but it's just, it's something to consider. Yeah, it's good information to have. I think the more information you can arm yourself with, I think the better off you typically are, you know, assuming you're not paralyzing yourself by having too much information to try and decipher when it all doesn't add up to the same thing. And I just, to me, one of the biggest things is people tend to, tend to judge, you know, kind of the rut more off of the bucks and the buck movement, which is, you can do that, but you can also kind of look at the does and the way the does move and how the does are acting. Um, you know, you've, everybody's seen those does that have been pushed around by a buck that she's always looking behind her. She doesn't want to look forward. She wants to look what's behind her next to chase her. Um, so you can really determine a lot by kind of how those does in your area are reacting just as much as you can from the bucks. Some of the does that I observed from the stand in the last week and a half, you know, it's like they just wouldn't act normal. They wouldn't act like the does you'd see in September, October. They wouldn't just be walking around cautiously looking around. They'd be bouncing around zigzagging back and forth when you knew there was nothing else you know spooking them uh and then you'd see another deer behind her you know a little year and a half buck pushing her just you know i'd, I'd see does that would kind of walk around with their head kind of low tail up halfway just things that you wouldn't normally see a deer acting like and those those are kind of keys to me that either that doe was in estrus or you know was very close to it and like you said, just the, the kind of the family groups of does. So you start, you see three or four does together, um, especially one that might have, you know, her fawns with her. 
those fawns are going to kind of get run off. They're going to get split up pretty quick once that doe starts to come into heat. So you'll start seeing a lot more single does. You might see one or two together, um, but a lot of times you're going to see, you know, single does together because once that buck starts running one of those does, the other doe really doesn't want to be around there when all that chaos is going on. So she's just going to kind of distance herself and be like, ah, I don't want to be around any of this right now. And then that buck, you know, may find her three or four days later and run her around ragged. Yeah, and what was interesting was there would be literally like one day I would see a doe acting really goofy all by herself, getting chased. And then, you know, the very next day I'd see a group of three does just walking by super cautious. And it's like, okay, well, there's clearly a difference between the does that I'm seeing right now and the ones that I saw yesterday. Yeah, I mean, they could easily be that plus or minus, you know, five days. So that one doe could be on the bottom end of her five days or the top end of her five days and those other three does be at the bottom end. So there's a 10-day difference there basically. Um, in 10 days, there's a pretty big difference on the amount of chasing and pushing you're going to see on that doe. Mm-hmm. Which again, makes it, makes it really imperative to stress that it's the data trends that you're looking at for your particular area. It's not what you see once. Yeah. Cause you may see, like you said, that one doe that her conception date is going to be even October 17th or 18th, you know, getting pushed around. You're like, Oh, the rut's going to be early this year. You know, in all reality, that was that one little blip on the graph at the very beginning of the graph. She was the first doe bred this season, you know, and likewise on the back end of that, you may see one of those, you know, three or four of those does that's on the back end of that bell curve that's, you know, getting pushed around. And you may think that, you know, the the, the rut was later this year than what it normally has been. When in all reality, if you look at that bell curve, it's probably going to stay the same. That bell curve is going to peak around the same time frame, again, plus or minus a couple of days each year, depending on where you're at. So you need to figure out how to obtain that information, whether that's, you know, through your local biologist or through your data collection by doing the, the fetus calculations and the fetus measurements to determine when that peak conception date was in your area. And don't get your rut timing information from reports on Facebook. Or or archery talk. <laughs> I, haven't, uh, I haven't used archery talk for it, but I, I follow a few <laughs> hunting groups on Facebook, and there'll be guys asking, you know, what what's the rut report? What's the status? And then, you know, some guy from 200 miles north of him will say, oh, we saw this last week. And some guy from, you know, 30 miles east will be like, oh, it's not going on here. It's going to be a bad rut, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, if you – if you wait for a guy in Florida to tell you when the rut is on, you done missed it. I'll just throw that out there now. <laughs> so the, again, you just got to keep all these factors in mind when you're when you're looking at the rut. You know, obviously we know to kind of go over all this as kind of a summary. Photo period causes the does to come into rut or come into estrus, not rut. Participate in the rut. That buck is ready to go from September to, you know, March, as late as March possibly. So that's a pretty wide time frame for him. So again, we're going to default back to the does to try to determine this. You know, photo period, conception date is hard evidence proof of when that happened. And again, the fetus is the easiest, in my opinion, the easiest and best way to determine this for your area. And then use that back calculation, figure that out um, and use that information, but don't rely on it you know, keep collecting that data because that trend may change. Like I said, a couple days, you know, as it goes on, the more data points you collect, obviously the more concrete that that's going to be. And there's probably some amount of statistical error just in the, the size of the, the measurement. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's all kind of, you know, they say kind of a natural position, you know, if you get it off of the natural position a little bit, if you kind of stretch it out a little longer than what it really is that's going to kind of throw you off as well so like you said there's some statistical variation in this but for the most part and if i remember right i think actually the guy who did this research he may have been the founder of qdma um don't quote me on that but i want to say that he was and that research was late late 70s maybe early 80s somewhere in that time frame 75 somewhere there was this when he did this uh fetus research to be able to back calculate conception date and i do i i'm almost positive it's the same guy that founded qdma but i'm not don't quote me on that but i guess i'm on audio so i was quoted anyways i wonder if i wonder if mass would be a a better way to analyze than length or more more repeatable for other people to try and mimic the method mass is in Weight. weight yeah I think that's going to have probably, 
that could be more affected by your dough health. So again, that mm. how how much like kidney fat that doe may have, what how's her development rate? Because I I know they can abort fawns like if the winter gets too hard on them, um, they can abort that and kind of reabsorb the nutrients from them. Yeah. So then once people have this information that they collect over time, that they're able to best use that information to learn about their specific deer population that they're hunting, and over time, kind of gather the best dates. And then in addition to that, if they're hunting a, a larger deer, that's what they're targeting. They got to figure out what that deer's core range is, the amount, you know, find that area that he's going to be moving in during the rut and then correlate that to the time that you've learned is the best time to be out in the woods for your area. And again, find the best pin, pinch points and the best, you know, particular spots to be able to maximize your time in the woods. So the more of that data you can collect, the more in advance you know when to put your your rut vacation or your rutcation as i've seen it on facebook lately you know you can put that in advance you always see these people that are you know mid-october is like oh when should i put my my vacation in to hunt the rut you know that's the kind of information you should know coming up well before the next year if you take all this information and use the rest of that time like garrett said to get in there try to find that buck's core area get an idea of where he is and where you need to be during that time frame. And that's to me, the best way to go about hunting the rut. Absolutely. So if you guys have anything you want us to hear, want us to talk about any listener request, anything like that, hit us up on Facebook, the YouTube channel. Um, if you want a specific topic you want us to, to cover, um, feel free to hit us up. We'll try to try to get it covered when we can. We also want to remind you guys to subscribe to the DIY Sportsman YouTube channel and social media pages, as well as the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe to the podcast network wherever you would normally download your podcasts, and please leave us a review on iTunes.